Friends, good morning. Good morning. Uh, this is a surprise for me to, to be here, but uh, here I am, <laughs> apparently God's will. So uh, I have some thoughts, as uh, Rod mentioned, uh, the, about various things I have seen in the past. I know <clears throat> this morning, for example, that we have been through a whole series of, of uh, sermons and uh, uh, on the book of Matthew. And during those, while we went through uh, Christ's entire life, and they were excellent sermons given by Rod, Jason, and, uh, of, oh, uh, uh, Mike Caps and uh, John last week did a beautiful job. And uh, I, he clued me. He used the scriptures continually to reinforce various points he wanted to make. And uh, that was a good uh, thought for me to uh, work on on this sermon today. And one of those sermons uh, that Rod gave, he made a statement that kind of uh, intrigued me. He said, We have a sovereign God who orchestrates all the details and circumstances of many lives, even those who have no regard for Jesus, to accomplish his will. I'll read it again just so we kind of catch that. We serve a sovereign God who orchestrates all the details and circumstances of many lives, even those who have no regard for Jesus, To accomplish his will. Well, I got thinking about that. And uh, uh, this is uh, something that we are all quite familiar with. But then uh, I got thinking a little bit more. And so I started uh, looking in the scriptures to see, okay, what is God's will? Uh, It would be helpful to know a little bit about that. So... Uh, I looked in the uh, uh, book of Exodus, and on the 20th chapter, there were the Ten Commandments. And so I read the Ten Commandments, and, and he said, this is the law. And a rather important statement just pertaining to the Ten Commandments. Uh <clears throat> Then Rod went on, and uh, oh, I, I looked at that as far as finding out God's will, and I looked at some other things. Everything that came after uh, Exodus 20, on through to the next to last chapter of the book of Leviticus, uh, and in that verse, uh, it concluded a block of sermons uh, that uh, God or that Moses gave the Israelites, so that they would know, first of all, how they were to worship God and all of the details, and it went into tremendous detail. Another thing that it showed, there was a whole passage there that told of the things that God uh, very highly approved of and those things that he abhorred. And uh, another little section 
pointed out that uh, uh, God would bless those who obeyed and he would curse those who did not obey. And uh, <clears throat> I thought, well, all of that is right interesting. And it also mentioned in there that some of the tools, you might say, that he would use to supplement his, his uh, comments and his thoughts, uh, such as uh, tornadoes, floods, uh, uh, famines, the sword, and uh, uh, quite a variety of things that he would use to warn and to discipline uh, not only individuals but nations. All that's interesting. Uh, now the question I had was, okay, uh, I'm from Missouri. Uh, I would like to show me. And so uh, I thought back about the various things that I knew of World War II. And the part that I was in, I was very busy running around, and I never did get in much trouble. Uh, thank you, Lord. And, uh, but afterwards, I decided, you know, an awful lot went on. And so I started reading up about various things that happened in Europe uh, before the war, during the war, and afterwards in Europe, and also what things that were taking place uh, in the Pacific. Here we had uh, a war one ocean away uh, on the, in Europe, another ocean away over in Asia, and uh, a lot going on. <coughs> One of the first things that, that I saw, I was looking to see, is God's hand in this any place? And because there were good guys and bad guys. The people in Europe, uh, the Germans under Hitler, uh, were not a God-fearing nation by any means. The uh, people in Asia uh, under the, the uh, emperor of Japan were also ones that had absolutely no use for Christianity. Therefore, what we had was this nation that believed in God uh, versus two non-believing enemies. Uh, I spoke about it as, as our nation uh, was a godly nation. And I think that that should be defined somewhat. What constitutes a godly nation? Our nation at that time uh, was ex they accepted the Judeo-Christian moral code as the proper uh, uh, set of rules for each of us individually to uh, adhere to in our conduct with each other. And another thing, they were the uh, that was what we expected our nation to do too. Well, some have asked, uh, what do you mean by that Judeo-Christian? Well, that's an expression that may be strange to you. It is based on the fact that uh, what our beliefs are based on are the Old Testament in part and the New Testament in part and all as a whole. Uh, <clears throat> the Old Testament gave us, quote, the law. And that law stuck right straight through and still does the Ten Commandments. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus explained that they were 
uh, a little more detailed than what some of the local boys had, had thought at the time, that if you just didn't uh, uh, shoot anybody or stick them and do them in, why, you were okay. And Jesus made it very, very plain. No, uh, your thoughts alone uh, that you want to do it. You've already sinned then. So, and it was the same with a lot of other things that uh, you're not supposed to do, but just the thought was a sin. Uh, uh, he went on later in Matthew and uh, uh, quoted the, the uh, passage. So someone asked him what the greatest commandment was. And he said, the, uh, well, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke about the law and meaning the Ten Commandments, and he did not intend to change one jot or tittle of all of that the, was everything that was in the law. Uh, later in Matthew, he made the statement that uh, the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, and the second is like unto it. Uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said something terrifically important. All the law and the uh, uh, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Uh, and he was bringing in the prophets and the prophets among other things uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah both said any kingdom or nation that will not worship me will be destroyed. It will be utterly ruined. Uh, that made it pretty plain. So all of that was quite interesting. So I started looking at the at these nations and things that took place. Uh, and uh, one of the first ones that struck my mind was something that happened actually before we were in the war. Uh, the uh, Hitler had gone up and to the uh, and taken Poland, Norway, and some other nations, and uh, in '39, and then he didn't do anything, but the the French mobilized and the English on the northern body or just north of or the northern border of France near Belgium. In May, uh, all of a sudden. Here comes Hitler's blitzkrieg, right through that French and English army, right deep into the heart of France. Uh, the English uh, scooted as fast as they could over to the uh, the edge of the English Channel, hoping they could, uh, that against hope they could get across and get back to England. Uh, the English sent some of their uh, bigger vessels over quick, quick to get as many as they could. Uh, but there was only one dock that it could go to uh, in Dunkirk. And so uh, they weren't getting many. But the, the English Channel, the weather remained calm. And I thought about that uh, passage uh, where in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus was asleep in the boat and a terrible storm came up about to swamp the boat. They woke him up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. 
So I knew that he could create a calm if he wanted to. The English Channel remained calm. And Churchill thought, hey, we're not getting those guys over here. So he ordered everyone who had a boat that could get over and back, go for it. And so off they went. And a lot of those boats were were small enough they could go right up to the beach where the guys could wade out and get on. And some of them got hit with uh, by planes and didn't make it back to England, but an awful lot did. There were enough that got back to form 29 regular divisions. And uh, the, the uh, uh, English Channel had remained calm for over a week. And another thing, and this was not anything that any human being could do. And another thing that happened, the German army did not push it. They did not come down where they could have wiped those guys out. They held back. I don't know why. I've never heard why, but they did. So I thought, well, now, the Lord certainly put his hand in. He knew that we needed those troops, and that was before we got in the war. Uh, the uh, Another thing that occurred pertaining to that English Channel and the weather was four years later, Four years later, the situation had flipped. We were over there, and the English were had strengthened. We had a big bunch of people, and we wanted to come over and back to France and take over and defeat Germany. Uh, this would require a huge flotilla, and... Uh, it means that you had to get there and you had to get not only some troops ashore to get a beachhead, you also had to get supplies uh, and more troops, a lot of troops in to fight, and then you had to get supplies to, to uh, keep them fed, ammunition, and all the rest of the things they needed. So uh, it was going to be a pretty big affair. The uh, <clears throat> Oh, thank you. Oh, man. I probably need that pretty soon. <laughs> so the uh, Eisenhower had everything lined up, and the big question is: Is that English Channel going to be calm enough? Because on the fifth of June in uh, '44, uh, it was pretty messy, and uh, I'm not too sure whether we could handle that. And they. Some said, well, we ought to have a window tomorrow. And uh, he thought, the next time is about uh, 40 days from now before we'll have the tides right and everything else right. And to wait for good weather or go ahead. He decided be better uh, looking at all the circumstances to do it on the 6th. So he said, go for it. And they did. The weather cleared up beautifully. We got across, and not only did we get across, but we were able to build up a, a huge artificial harbor well, just off the beaches in France. And uh, 
that artificial harbor was, they got a bunch of, of old vessels and sank them in a ring and uh, had an opening, and then they had other things to protect them. Then inside that lagoon with, where there's deep enough water for big boats, uh, they put some uh, pontoon receiving docks and with receiving uh, uh, roads going back to the beach. So high tide or low tide, uh, they could be sending loads ashore. It worked beautifully. We got a lot over there and uh, uh, established our beachhead. And uh, uh, by the time the, the time was up, we had uh, opened up uh, Cherbourg and could use that harbor. Uh, then at the time that they would have, the 40 days later when they would have had the uh, the invasion, the worst storm that ever hit the English Channel did. The first day, winds hit 90 miles an hour. The second two days, they topped 100 miles an hour. And for the next few days, why it calmed down was only 90 miles an hour. There was nothing left of that artificial harbor, except a few little pieces they were able to scrape together. But Cherbourg was open, and we could uh, get through. Uh, I kind of thought of that as a vote of confidence that God gave Eisenhower for having the courage to go into the the uh, uh, badlands when told to. <laughs> so that was those were a couple of them. Uh, uh, in between that time, and just as about, we were about to get into the war, we had a terrible attack uh, on Pearl's Harbor. And everyone was wondering, well, why did God allow that to happen? We lost our battleships, got blasted so they were, we couldn't use them. Uh, the whole place was shot up. Uh, that, that doesn't seem right. We're the good guys. And... The, the Japs are bad. Nimitz, uh, the admiral who was uh, subsequently sent over there to, to control all of the Navy in the Pacific, got there, and he looked. And he saw that the tank farm that we had, that had a couple of years' supply of fuel oil for the ships, had not been touched that the repair facilities for ships, uh, all of that stuff with the dry docks, that they hadn't been touched. Uh, there were the battleships and some of the others were badly damaged and could not be used. Had they been usable, Admiral Kimmel would instantly have sent them out after that Japanese force. That Japanese force had three aircraft carriers that were much faster than the vessels, the battleships that we had or the cruisers that we had. If we had gone out, sent all of our sailors and our ships out after them, those flight, those uh, aircraft carriers could have sailed around just out of reach of our guns and just let us have it. We would have lost all of our ships and sailors. Uh, thank you, Lord. Uh, that was stopped. So there were, uh, and uh, if those, if that tank farm had been hit, it would have been years before we'd ever get that enough fuel to support 
a naval operation in the Pacific. Uh, the fact that they did not come back the second day was a tremendous blessing. We had nothing that we could have touched them with, and they could have wiped out everything. They didn't. Thank you, Lord. So those were a couple of things that I thought were particularly interesting. But then I ran across a uh, another one that uh, uh, I thought really exemplified uh, the point I wanted to make. And this was a situation that happened. i got to keep track of whether where I am. I'm all over the place. <laughs> uh, uh, in the Philippines, or in the uh, uh, Pacific War, and now, now we're going from Europe area, now we're going over to, to, to uh, the Pacific. Uh, we had, uh, uh, from the the southern islands there, we had been working north towards Japan. And we'd been chasing the Japanese off one island and then another. And we'd gotten all the way up to uh, the uh, some of the Philippine islands, or lines in the Philippines. And uh, we have to think of the Philippines as a series of, of, of islands very close together. And uh, the... The one at the very top, northern one, Luzon, is the capital of the Philippines. And uh, so we had gotten up to Leyte, which is an island uh, just below uh, where uh, Luzon. But the, and we had made a landing at, at Leyte in a gulf. That, uh, there was a gulf right there with an op- opening from the ocean in this area. And we had made the landing in a couple of places and we're very active on that. The Japanese Admiralty decided this is untenable. Uh, we have got to stop them. And so they decided what they would do. Uh, of those north-south islands, over on the uh, west side uh, was where the Japanese had their naval bases. We were pretty much on the east side with our fleets. Uh, <coughs> Uh, so the Japanese, to get to Leyte, they would have to go through a passage either on the uh, halfway up or a little bit further south to get through those islands to get up and get into the uh, uh, Leyte Bay. They decided on sending uh, one force to come in through the south, another uh, uh, task to go through the middle, and then they had one up at the very north. The one at the very north, just above uh, Luzon, the top island, was bait. It was a fake. There were uh, two to three aircraft carriers in it. And uh, the only difficulty was by that time in the war, they didn't have any pilots. And so <laughs> those, those uh, big, great big aircraft carriers were useless to them. So, but... They were aircraft carriers, and the Americans didn't know they didn't have any pilots. But they were, they were a terrific weapon. So the idea was that uh, the people up in Luzon would see it, and the word would get down to Halsey uh, that there were another attack coming with aircraft carriers from the north. And 
what we had was we had one fleet that would protect the south entrance, and then Halsey and his fleet would protect Leyte Bay uh, on the uh, on the east side of the islands. So Halsey got the word, and away he went with every ship he had. Boy, he went zooming on up there. Uh, he'd heard word that the center force had been wiped out by aircraft, and the the uh, southern path uh, group came through. And they started up during the night through Suriago Strait uh, in order to come up so that they could meet the Central Force at the same time the next day and they could go in and wipe out the Leyte landing. Uh, there was one difficulty as they came single file up through Suriago Strait with the Southern Force. Uh, just at the top entrance, there happened to be uh, Admiral uh, Oh, now I can't think of his name. Anyway, our admiral. And he had a reception committee that included six battleships and six cruisers. And they had a very good fire direction system that would work at night, uh, far better than what the Japs had. So here they came trotting up here, happy as could be. And these things all let go at the same time. And the air was like a hailstorm of uh, 16 and 12-inch armor-piercing shells and very well aimed. And that first battleship uh, in practically no time was ablaze from stem to stern, made a turn, started back, rolled over, and sank. And the rest of them were gone. Uh, That took care of that group. Halsey was gone. And there was no provision left to take care of the central force. And here they came. Uh, so on that morning, uh, the next day, uh, there happened to be uh, three little groups of American ships. And uh, they were... Uh, they were codenamed Taffy 1, Taffy 2, and Taffy 3. Taffy 3 was leading them. They were on the, on the uh, east side. They were coming up about to go to, into uh, uh, Leyte Gulf. And so they were coming up. Taffy 3 was leading, and Taffy 2 and Taffy 1 were following uh, several miles behind. The uh, lookout on Taffy 3, as dawn was breaking, looked out. <laughs> there ahead, they could see just coming over the horizon, the pagodas, those are the top, uh, uh, top uh, constructions of the uh, Japanese battleships coming up over the horizon. Uh, and there were four of them, four Japanese battleships coming, and they were accompanied by uh, six uh, uh, heavy cruisers and 12 destroyers. Uh, When that word got to the commanding officer of of the Taffys, who was in Taffy 3, Admiral Sprague, when he got that, he knew that a gigantic blunder had taken place. Uh, that 
that tremendous fleet. There was nothing to stop it. It could go right into that harbor where they were still busily unloading. They planned to, on that landing, to be unloading ships, transports, and supply ships uh, through the 29th. This was the 24th. Uh, bad news. Now, what are we going to do about that? Well, there wasn't any question in Admiral Sprague. Uh, we're going to attack. And attack he did. <laughs> With, and in the, his, his group, he had uh, five uh, uh, baby flat tops. Uh, what a baby flat top is, one of the things we discovered during the war when we couldn't make big aircraft carriers, we'd take an old cargo shop, ship, clean off the top, and put a flat deck on it that uh, planes could land on, and... Uh, uh, and just barely, and then have a few planes below decks. That worked very well in the uh, uh, Atlantic against the submarines when we couldn't get air protection way out at sea uh, to protect the, the ships going over to Europe. But uh, so we had, in these little groups, each taffy had about five uh, baby aircraft carriers, and they had about seven or eight destroyers uh, to protect them. But seven or eight destroyers against four battleships and six cruisers? And no way. It ain't going to happen. So uh, Sprague immediately ordered all the planes on uh, his and the other taffies up and the attack. He immediately notified everybody in the whole area, uh, get planes in the air, there's a terrible bunch down here. We need all the help we can get. Uh, and then he told those pilots when they took off, when you run low on gas, don't come back here because we're not going to be here. And <laughs> there was no way they would be around that long. Uh, one of the uh, destroyer captains told his crew, we're going into battle against a force that is a hundred times bigger than ours. Any of you guys in the boat who are swimming in the next 15 minutes are the lucky ones. <laughs> and so away they went, as happy as they could be. Uh, and the, the battle was engaged. Now then, uh, what happened? Uh, <clears throat> the Lord put in his hand, and he had a lot of things happening. One thing was that the way the wind was blowing, all of the baby aircraft carriers had to go as fast as they could away from the, the oncoming force to be, uh, so that the wind blowing across the deck would give them enough lift to get the planes up. That helped. Uh, the destroyers uh, were told, make smoke. Every American vessel was to make smoke as much as you could. And uh, uh, then he, uh, uh, let's see, uh, he had them to, to protect the, the baby t uh, carriers as best they could. And so they were to, to attack and also use torpedoes. Uh, the air conditions, as I said, the wind was right. The wind was light, and the smoke 
would stay right in the area. It was very effective. Uh, the, the Lord also had a whole series of rain squalls and our destroyers could dodge in the rain, uh, into a, under a, one of those rain squalls and, and they, the enemy couldn't see them. And so they could move around there. And one of them came out, and there was a battleship. And he immediately let fly with all the guns he had at the pagoda or the the uh, control towers up above. And so they broke windows all as fast as they could. What they had, we had no chance of penetrating that heavy armor. But they attacked fiercely and continually and uh, were dodging back and forth and causing a lot of confusion. So Admiral Sprague uh, used everything he had and fought as fiercely as he could. Uh, the, a funny thing happened as far as the Japs When the Japanese group came out of uh, San Bernardino Strait, he didn't have his, his uh, fleet organized properly at all. And he started south, and then he heard all of a sudden that there were a, a bunch of big American aircraft carriers, and they're launching planes, and they're cruisers all around him. Uh, and so we're in for a big struggle, and Admiral Halsey's fleet must be right around the corner. These people wouldn't be coming in attacking like this if Halsey wasn't right there. Well, Halsey wasn't there. He was miles away. <laughs> uh, but that upset this admiral uh, quite a bit. It's unheard of that he should be so disorganized. But he immediately gave an order. And before that could be executed and the boats could move around, he gave another order that contradicted it. And so pretty quick, why uh, he didn't know where his people were. And... Uh, the cruisers had gone on ahead, and uh, then there was a big torpedo attack. So his big battleship made a big U-turn, and the others followed it. And so then he was going right back up where he'd come from. And uh, the, uh, he, he uh, was most upset about it, and so he ordered all of his fleet to come with him. Break off all action and come up here. We're going to get reorganized and attack properly. So he got up there, and uh, he wasn't so enthused about it at all. And uh, he, he thought about, I think maybe I'd rather go home. And he did. <laughs> the net result of that, uh, Admiral Sprague uh, lost two. The, the, their, the Jap cruisers got two of the uh, little baby aircraft carriers and got two of our destroyers. But the, the tremendous air attacks that came from what uh, uh, Sprague had sent the warning out for sank two of the cruisers that the Japs had. But the big thing was they lost their only chance to wipe out uh, that uh, landing in Leyte. Uh, uh, those are a, uh, a couple of the things in the way of battles, but there, uh, uh, there are other things. I was asked to say what my, what some of my conclusions are on it. Well, my conclusions are, as I told you, what our nation believed in the, uh, the fact that 
uh, we believe God's word. And that uh, as, as kids, all the kids I knew and, and uh, knew it at college, uh, when we were talking about this business of, of uh, you know, Judeo-Christian rules and things, we had been taught what's, what's right, and the Ten Commandments were commandments, not suggestions. And that was right and wrong, and what God said was right and wrong. And there was a God, and that he existed, and that uh, he was in control. And we were taught that. We were also taught the fact uh, you, were, you were not your own. You were bought at a price, uh, that... Uh, we belong uh, to God and we belong uh, to our country and we were taught uh, a lot of the history of our country and the struggles that George Washington went through and we actually heard about the miracles that that, uh, God did for George, George Washington to get his army off of Long Island and save it from the British and uh, they went to New York, and then he was able to get it off of New York, out of New Jersey, and down, and then gave him the victory at Trenton, which was so critically important. But time and again, uh, we knew of the fact that, that God was working with our people. Our people were suffering all kinds of stuff, but they hung in there, and they came through and won. So we were aware of those. We were very proud of what those people did. We also, as kids, would read about uh, all various wars abroad and the, the heroes of Greece and the heroes of Rome and how they went. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, as I said before, why all of my classmates and I uh, were going to get in this war we weren't in it at, uh, when I went to college, uh, but we, we're going to get in it. And so uh, we signed up in ROTC Army and ROTC Navy. Uh, I couldn't get in the Navy when it can't see. And so, uh, but we were anxious to go. Uh, when it came to the time to attack in Europe, uh, our guys wanted to be there and... Uh, uh, they didn't like being in those landing craft going in at Omaha Beach by any means. But that's where they wanted to be. We want to be where the nation wants us. It was a, a, a different attitude. And then what happened? Uh, this is the, the uh, background that I grew up with. And then... And, uh, 1949, the war was over in 45, and everyone gave a great sigh of relief and a shout for joy. Uh, but uh, all of a sudden, the Supreme Court in 1949 said separation of church and state. And uh, what they meant by that was to separate God from anything in the public anything in the public sphere. And uh, there was no reaction. And so they waited. And about 10 years, then uh, we'll get prayer out of school. Uh, no Ten Commandments any place. No crosses. 
uh, no Christmas displays, uh, none of that. But especially in schools, I recall one uh, at a Bible study, and uh, the uh, one of the people there was a young woman who was a, a teacher in the first grade and told of a thing that had happened. She was in a school where they were very politically correct, and he, she didn't dare say a word about God or Christ. And uh, one of the little students, uh, the two little students came up, and one of them was uh, just using terrible language uh, to the other. And the other little girl said, What you're saying? Do you know that God's looking at you right now? He's looking at you and he's saying, what? <laughs> the teacher said, oh, she was so delighted. Uh, she couldn't say a word but other than just have a silent prayer because she couldn't say anything. But uh, it was a, uh, a situation. Looked into that. Hey, what ha- what's happening here? That uh, There's not enough rising. And then uh, I looked to see, okay, uh, what's happening here? Judeo-Christian, out, something had to come in. What came in? Uh, 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 no. Secular humanism. And uh, so I looked to see what's that all about. Well, Humanist Manifesto 1 and Humanist Manifesto 2 uh, dictated the rules for behavior uh, under those under the new uh, code of ethics for the nation. Uh, <clears throat> there is no God. There is no life after death. Uh, you're only going through once. Uh, have fun. And uh, truth is whatever serves you best right now. And so... Uh, uh, the ends justify the means. Well, that's not so good. And then another thing was taking place. A lot of nations were going over to communism. What's required there? Oh, in order to have a good dictatorship, there are about uh, four or five things you need to do. First, get rid of all the guns. The next thing you, you've got to do is to uh, get rid of anything, any religion that has a supreme God who is more powerful than the government. Get rid of that or anyone who believes in that. Uh, get rid of the knowledge that the people have of their past so that they don't know anything about their past or their past, past beliefs and criteria. So uh, get rid of, the, uh, of that. Uh, Another thing you, you want to do is to, to uh, uh, promise them everything under the sun, all kinds of goodies. And uh, uh, so I looked at that, that list of the things in order to have a dictatorship, and I looked at what the, the uh, progressives were doing with secular humanism. And right now I can look and see that they have not succeeded in getting all the guns. Uh, as far as the uh, getting rid of Christianity, uh, they've got it out of an awful lot of the public school 
but they have not. They've been. They've succeeded perfectly, uh, in uh, as far as the universities, the liberal. That's the liberal uh, colleges. Uh, that's pretty well gone, and it's secular humanism, politically correct. Uh, as far as the media is concerned, the major media is now totally under control of the secular progressives. Uh, the uh, let's see, uh, the promises. Uh, listening to the candidates uh, who are, want to be president. Uh, they'll give you anything you want. Uh, it fits right in with that. But there was a, you start putting those two things together, and I, then I take a look at the nation, and I look at the uh, availability of pornography, the sexual freedom, and uh, every, every particular uh, flavor of sexual misbehavior is uh, fairly common. The, uh, uh, let's see, I mentioned these various organizations like the major media, the, uh, the, or the uh, uh, entertainment industry, uh, strictly polluted. Uh, and we look at the situation we have in the nation with drugs, abortion, free sex, uh, do your own thing, have fun. Uh, uh, we're, we have turned from being a nation under God into a mess, a total disaster. The uh, situation looks particularly bad, and yet there's another aspect to it that we need to pay attention to. Uh, think about Taffy 3. And Taffy 3, uh, an impossible situation, uh, but they fought and uh, went right after what they knew was right. And I thought then of Gideon. And Gideon was a kind of reluctant initially, but Gideon followed God's instruction, uh, and he blew the horn, and he assembled 32,000 troops. And God looked at him and said, Gideon, you've got too many people here for me to give you that victory. Now you've got to get rid of some. So he, uh, Gideon said, okay, you guys, any of you guys who are frightened, uh, go home. 22,000 left. Well, he had 10,000. And God said, Gideon, you got too many. Uh, give him a water test. And then, uh, so Gideon did. And he had 300 left. And, uh, uh, in the meantime, the hordes of the Amalekites and the Midianites and the, all of the people of the, uh, the great eastern area were assembled, and they were all uh, in the land. So Gideon and his 300 were told how to attack. They did. And God routed that whole mess out. And uh, we can be thinking about that and the situation we're in. Uh, we are a very small group, but we have the Lord God, but we've got to turn from our mischief and, uh, and pray to him. But along with praying, we've got to act. Uh, Gideon's 300 had to attack. Uh, uh, the 
Taffy 3, they had to attack. And we have to attack. But this is a spiritual warfare. And as such, we fight with the weapons that uh, Jesus gave us. He stated that uh, as far as the rules that he gave us, he said we're courteous, we're respectful. Uh, In this, uh, the ends do not justify the means. We will fight bad ideas with good ideas. And so uh, when we have opportunities to, to speak for the Lord, we do. And we push that and we work on that. These are the things that we have ahead of us. This whole sermon has been uh, rather unique in that uh, it's been a work in progress. Uh, the more I work on it, the more things I see. And the more things I see, why uh, did we let go? Uh, why did the uh, uh, God-fearing nation let go of what they had? And uh, I figured, I finally figured that out. Uh, they had gotten through World War II. Uh, they were so relieved. They had worked so hard, everybody, not just in sacrifices, not just the, the uh, soldiers and sailors, but the people at home. Uh, they were working uh, night shifts, uh, everything else. The women were working in all kinds of, of uh, hot jobs and difficult jobs. Uh, people were giving up all, a lot of food and everything else. And uh, uh, they were self-sacrificing and self-sacrificing. And uh, they know, oh, we've got to do this, we got to do that. Uh, and the, the war was over. Whew. We don't have to do that anymore. We've had enough of that. Let's uh, relax now and get back. And so they, they let down. And then they were ripe for what the mischief makers came in on. Uh, I think when we know right now, okay, we're a very small remnant of God's people, uh, but we are a remnant and we are God's people. And therefore, uh, all I can say is, welcome aboard. <laughs> Let's have at it. <laughs> Uh, battle stations for all of you and it's full speed ahead with boat engines thank you very much and God be with you